Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Dan Eikenson. I am director of uh, the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here. Um, today we are going to be talking about the issue of dealing with China's steel overcapacity. I suppose it's not the sexiest topic being discussed in Washington today, but it is important nonetheless, as evidenced by your, your presence. Um, in 1995, the United States and China, or the steel mills in both countries, produced about the same amount of steel, slightly under 100 million metric tons, about 95 million metric tons. In those 20 years that have elapsed since, China's steel production has increased eightfold to over 800 million metric tons. U.S. steel production has declined slightly, about 17% to about 75, 80 million metric tons. Uh, globally, over the same period, um, we saw uh, a pretty big, uh, about a 20% increase overall, but most of the increase in that steel, 80% of it or so, is attributable to Chinese steel production. So there is a reasonable basis to conclude that Chinese policies uh, are having some influence on the overcapacity, oversupply issue that seems to be afflicting uh, U.S. steel producers and producers in other countries as well. Um, China now accounts for half of global steel output, and it is the world's largest uh, exporter. Um, so a, a global market, I think, that is so affected by these policies, uh, there, uh, I think eight or nine of the ten largest Chinese steel producers are state-owned enterprises. There are a lot of incentives in place to uh, encourage steel production in China. This isn't market economics. Uh, it's not, it, it is a bit problematic. Um, and the US steel industry has responded with complaints. Uh, there are something like 160 or over 160 anti-dumping and countervailing duty measures in place on steel products in general. M most of them uh, are, are directed at China. The, these duties, the anti-dumping measures, the countervailing duty measures have not restored profitability to the U.S. industry. They have not uh, brought capacity back online. They have not restored employment. Um, these laws have not been all that effective uh, over time in, in helping industries uh, maintain long-term viability. Um, but what it has done is created problems for downstream steel-using companies in the United States. Uh, what happens when we impose duties on upstream products, the cost of production for the downstream industries, uh, for the firms in the downstream industries, rises. Uh, and that's clearly, uh, there's no exception in, in, the, in the steel and steel using industry. Under the U.S. trade remedies laws, the International Trade Commission is statutorily prohibited from taking into account the adverse impact uh, of upstream duties on downstream industries. Uh, so that's something we need to, we need to consider. It's not to diminish the concerns of the steel industry. Clearly, they are operating in an environment that has been affected uh, by government inter intervention abroad. But if there's going to be a solution, we need to recognize that there are downstream companies which have to, you know, the downstream steel users account for 16 times the value added that steel producers uh, account for in the United States. So they're 16 times more important uh, if you're looking at GDP. They're also over 16 times more important as a source of employment. So when we impose measures that benefit the steel industry and have adverse impacts on downstream industries, we need to take a, take a look at that and decide whether or not it's, it's in, our, in our interest. Um, so uh, the, the, 
guess the, the takeaway from that is, you know, we hear the United States needs to do this. We need this policy or that policy as though we were one monolith, as if one set of policies is all we need for the country. But clearly some policies that benefit steel producers uh, are going to come at the expense of steel users and vice versa. Um, so not only are the costs of production driven up for steel using companies in the United States when we have uh, duties in place, but the resulting lower glut of lower priced steel everywhere else uh, in the world makes the cost of production lower for the competitors of U.S. downstream industries. Uh, so U.S. steel using firms get it on the cost end, their costs rise, and then their foreign competitors are able to reduce their costs because their, their steel is, uh, is cheaper. Uh, so they get hit on the revenue side as well. So we need to, we need to think about that. Um, so today we're going to talk about how did, how did China become a dominant player uh, in the global steel marketplace. We'll ask whether this, is going to, this trend will continue, production will continue to rise. Can it be curtailed? What are the implications for global oversupply for the American steel industry? And, and what policy responses might best serve U.S. interests? And by U.S. interests, I'm hope, hoping that we're going to talk about the diversity uh, of interests. So our discussants today, our panelists today, have a commonality of backgrounds in the sense that uh, they've both been involved in uh, trade remedy litigation. Uh, they've, and they've both been involved in steel cases. I guess they're almost, there's a lot of overlap there. Uh, and they both have, uh, have worked in policy in Washington on the Hill. Uh, Kevin Dempsey is, is with the American Iron Steel Institute. And he leads the public policy team there, representing the interests of North American steel producers. And he serves as senior vice president of public policy and general counsel to the institute. Uh, before joining AISI, uh, Kevin was a partner at uh, Dewey LaBeouf, a global uh, law firm. And its predecessor, Dewey Valentine, I remember the steel cases in the early 90s. There was a big slew of them. I was at Wilkie Farr and Gallagher. And at the time, we were on opposite sides of this issue. Uh, uh, while in private practice, um, Kevin litigated numerous international trade cases on behalf of U U.S. steel producers uh, and other industries before the International Trade Commission. Uh, he also served as a counsel to several U.S. Uh, integrated steel producers in the Section 201 case in the early 2000s, the famous you know, Bush, uh, uh, Bush steel safeguards of the early 2000s. Prior to joining Dewey Ballantyne in 1995, Kevin Dempsey uh, served as counsel to Senator John Danforth of Missouri. Uh, and the U.S. Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. Later, he served on Senator Danforth's personal staff and, again, on the staff of the Senate Commerce Committee. Uh, he was involved in, uh, in trade negotiations, uh, the NAFTA, the Uruguay Round. Uh, so he's worked extensively in policy for a long time. And Kevin Dempsey has uh, got his JD at, at, at Harvard University. He has a Bachelor of Arts from Washington University. I'm going to also introduce Dan Pearson now, and you, you guys will speak successively, but I will introduce you both now. Uh, Dan is my colleague here at Cato. He's a senior fellow uh, in, in, in trade. He's been with us since 2013 after a 10-year stint at the U.S. International Trade Commission, which is, the, as I'm sure just everybody in this room knows, is the federal agency that, uh, among other responsibilities, oversees the U.S. anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws. Um, Dan was nominated to the USITC by President George W. Bush and began his term in October of 2003. Uh, he was chairman of the ITC for two years, uh, beginning in 2006. I, I imagine you had correspondence uh, in proceedings there, Kevin? Oh, yes, okay. Um, and prior to joining the ITC, Dan was, um, he, he worked uh, at, as a policy analyst for Cargill for 
15, 16 years. Uh, and before that, he was a uh, legislative uh, assistant to Senator Rudy Boschwitz, Minnesota, in the, in the 1980s. So some commonality of background, different perspectives. We're going to hear them both. Kevin's going to speak first for 20, 25, 30 minutes or something. Dan will follow up. We'll have a little discussion up here, and then we'll open up to discussion. So thanks for coming. Hope you enjoy the show. Thank you very much for that introduction. It's great to be here. Um, uh, it is uh, going back down memory lane, but at least this time, uh, Dan Pearson won't be able to ask me hard questions from a raised dais, so we'll have a, at least be on a little bit more level playing field. Uh, uh, I think this is a great uh, event, and I was really pleased when Dan uh, called me and asked me if I'd speak at, at Cato on, on this subject, because I think the China overcapacity problem is really a case study of the problem when governments get involved in trying to run businesses, trying to intervene in economies and direct, rather than letting market forces work, trying to direct policy and direct uh, 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 economic, uh, economic uh, uh, growth, because they, they often get it wrong. They don't know how to respond to market signals. And it leads to all sorts of uh, distortions that are very damaging to the global economy and certainly to the US economy. So, I'm going to talk a little bit about what's been happening in China and uh, what are some of the responses to it, and then we'll, we can uh, pick up with some of the, the questions and the, and the debate uh, thereafter. So, um, so this is just looking at the global situation. These are data from uh, the, the, the OECD Steel Committee. Uh, globally, we have a massive problem of overcapacity in steel. You see that. Um, that upper line uh, total capacity is way outseeding, exceeding the uh, crude steel demand for the world as a whole. And you see that the gap really grew starting in after the, uh, the uh, Great Recession in 2008, 2009, where when demand slowed, unfortunately, the capacity buildup just continued to climb ever more. So we've got this huge gap that is, um, is fueling uh, exports around the world and uh, trade distortions, both in the United States and around the world. And I think it's fair to say that, a, as, as uh, Dan noted the, in the outset, a lot of that relates to China, because China is the country that has seen the most significant expansion in its steel industry over the last 15 years, going from an industry that was roughly the same size as the US back in 2000, prior to joining the WTO, to now being some, in terms of production, eight times larger, uh, half the, the global uh, uh, steel industry. And, um, and that is directly the result of Chinese government policy. So you see the rapid change, whereas the US industry responding to market forces has seen some fluctuation from year, year to year, but has, has basically stayed roughly in the same size, responding to market demands, principally in the US, but also throughout uh, North America. So, but here you see the growth in China, that orange line growing in terms of its, its production from that low level, uh, lower level around the same size as the US back in 2001 to, uh, to where it is in 2015. The other blue line is the entire rest of the world combined. So you see almost all of the growth in steel demand, steel production over the last 15 years has been captured by China. So that China now, is, its production is equal to basically that of the entire rest of the world. You say, how does one country have such a huge change over a 15-year period? 
and the result, the reason for that is, is very much Chinese government policy. The Chinese government has been quite open. They've published a lot of policy documents. We list some of them here. The various plans, they have, it's still their five-year plans. They said, you know, we've made it a priority. We want to have a steel industry. We want to uh, grow that industry uh, to serve our needs. And so they've established a plan. They've provided for massive subsidies, other forms of uh, uh, restrictions on foreign investment, other things to all in, in an effort to build up its own industry. And the result is they have produced this very large industry, which is uh, overwhelmingly state-owned and state-controlled. So this is looking at the top 10 uh, steel producers in China. Nine of them are state-owned. And uh, if you move past the top 10, you find a lot more uh, state-owned uh, steel companies. And you know the largest two alone are larger than the entire US steel industry. What's notable about this, besides the fact that they're state-owned, that goes to a, one of the problems that we have in dealing with this is that if you look at the names of a number of these Chinese steel companies, they're the names of provinces, of you know Wuhan, Shandong, or of cities, Tianjin. They are not all, in the traditional sense, owned at the central government level within China. Many of them are owned at the provincial and the local level. They're still state-owned, but they're owned at a different level. That's important when we talk about how do you, how do you fix this problem, because we need to recognize that China faces a problem that's not uncommon for governments, where there is a difference of opinion between the central government and the provincial and local governments. And, uh, and that plays out very strongly in the case of steel, because the provincial governments, in many cases, are the owners of these, uh, these state-owned steel companies. So they've built up these state-owned steel producers. They've done that largely through a wide range of, of subsidy programs. These are all subsidies that have been found by the Commerce Department in various anti-dumping uh, counter and countervailing duty cases. The wide range, again, it, it's because of the, the significant Chinese government control over its economy. It's able not only to own the, the, the producers, but to control the price of electricity, the price of land, all the basic inputs. It's why. We also emphasize that China is very much a non-market economy. It's not letting market forces work within its economy. That's the way it controls and directs its uh, government policies. But it, and it's also one of the reasons why it's produced such a huge oversupply now of steel. Now, if you talk to the Chinese, and certainly if you talk to them back in the early 2000s, they would tell you, look, we're just trying to, trying to provide for our economic needs. And they say, you know, we're, we're a fast-growing economy. We need more and more steel to, to build our infrastructure. And uh, it is true, if you look at, at, at consumption of steel in China, and this was data just starts in 2005, but you went back and see the similar trend. Consumption of steel from China in the 2000s was rapidly increasing. Um, and, uh, and in the early years, in the first couple of uh, uh, years after 2000, China was actually a net steel importer. They were importing more steel than they were exporting because they had a huge demand for steel and they only had so much steel production. But they've, they've, they kept building steel production because they had, a, I think, a government vision that this demand increase would just continue on the same trajectory uh, going into the future. Unfortunately, the economic reality did not, was different than what the five-year plan said. And so you see that in 2013, Chinese apparent steel use, the global measure of steel demand peaked, and it's actually been declining over the last several years. And uh, the forecast for 2016 is another decline. And uh, 
our colleagues in the Korean steel industry that have a research institute that looks out more broadly has, uh, has forecast that probably over the next decade, Chinese steel demand is expected to decline each year, year on year. So the demand is no longer having that, that rapid increase. So in a market economy, if demand started declining, what you would expect to see is, you know, you'd have too many companies producing steel, too much capacity, you'd have what's happened in the US, companies would be forced to go out of business uh, because they're just the economic realities. Unfortunately, because of the large role of the government in China and the subsidy uh, program, what you've seen instead is Chinese, over capa Chinese capacity, that blue line, has continued to increase even as Chinese demand has leveled off and begun to decline. So that we've gone from a period where in the early 2000s, Chinese capacity and Chinese demand were roughly in line. They were actually importing a little bit for a while. They started uh, in the mid-2000s, started exporting because their capacity started exceeding the growth in demand. Uh, again, I think government planners every year had a more optimistic view of how quickly uh, their economy was going to grow then. And so they built more capacity than the demand allowed. And now they've gotten to a situation where if you just look at that difference in 2016 now between the estimate on apparent steel use and a what is, I think, a conservative estimate on Chinese steel capacity, because there are other estimates that are higher, that difference is now 500 million metric tons. Uh, and you say, well, how can any industry operate with that much excess capacity? How can they, their, their, their operating uh, rates are you know, below 70%. By uh, public uh, reporting, they, the steel industry in China lost something like $10 billion in, in, uh, in uh, 2015 because they, they're, they have much more capacity they can do. So what, what, have, what have they done to respond to that? They've sought to uh, keep production running as much as they can. And instead of supplying most of that to the domestic market, they have rapidly increased their exports to the world. So we see, if you just look at that, that increase, they were already a major exporter in 2013. But if you go from 2013 to th 2015, they almost doubled. They've gone to 112 million metric tons of exports in 2015. And this is to the world. It's not all to the US. Actually, most of it is to other parts of the world. Uh, and they're on pace to export an even higher percentage uh, and higher number uh, this year. Those exports, uh, to put it in perspective, that 112 million metric tons, that's more than total steel consumption in the United States. It's more than total steel consumption. If you took all the steel consumption in Japan and Germany for that year, that would all be, uh, could all be met by Chinese exports, plus they'd have 9 million metric tons left over. So it's a huge amount on, on the world market. And that is leading to distortions uh, uh, throughout the world, certainly in the US. We've seen in the US that uh, looking at just imports of steel, we hit uh, new records in terms of uh, import levels and in particular foreign market uh, share of the US uh, steel, and, uh, steel market in 2014 and 2015. A lot of that was, uh, was fueled by China. Now, a lot of it, to, to make the story a little bit more complicated, not all of that was directly uh, from China to the US. The largest exports from China go to Korea, to some other countries in Asia. And those countries, though, were then faced with a flood of imports. And what did they do with that excess Chinese steel production? In many cases, what they did is they 
sought to handle it the best they could, convert it, further process it into another steel product. For instance, in Korea, you had a lot of Chinese hot rolled that got converted into pipe. And then that pipe from Korea was exported to the US. So we've seen those imports come in both directly from China, but also indirectly through third countries. And that has, uh, in terms of the US, had a huge negative impact on the US industry. This, this slide looks at just US industry capacity utilization. We go back to the, the mid-1990s, just to give you a sense, you see there was the big steel crisis in the late 90s and early 2000s that led to the 201, led to a massive number of bankruptcies and restructuring the US industry. But back then, capacity utilization only dropped to maybe uh, in the, uh, you know, a little bit below 80%. Uh, it rebounded some after that as, the, as demand picked up globally in the 2000s. And then we saw a huge drop off in the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009, as, as you saw around the world. We were recovering from that uh, in the years after that until we saw this big influx in additional steel coming into the US, most of it dumped and subsidized in 2013, 2014, 2015. And you can see on the right-hand side what that's done to, in terms of US industry capacity utilization. We've dropped back down below 70% at a couple of points. And in the late, uh, late 2015, we were down as low as 60% capacity utilization, a rate that really is uh, at a level where you have to worry about companies literally going out of business. They cannot operate with our high fixed costs at that level. That is when, in 2015, when the industry in the US did bring a number of anti-dumping cases and countervailing duty cases against China and against a number of other sources to address the unfair trade and the injury that was being caused. And I think um, the question, has there been any impact on it? I do think you see, if you look here um, at, the, at that very low point, the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, that's right when preliminary relief started to be imposed under these flat rolled steel cases that were filed in early, mid 2015. And so I think we did see some recovery, some improvement in the industry. Now, I wouldn't say that we're back to health. We still have uh, a lot of challenges. We got back up into the mid 70s. Unfortunately, we're trending back down to 70% capacity utilization today. Part of that is because even if you stop, uh, reduce the, the amount of dumping happening from China, a couple of other major countries, that Chinese steel is still being exported around the world. And people are looking for markets to convert that steel and to further use it. And you've seen, for instance, after some of the anti-dumping and countervailing duty relief has been imposed, a sur an increase in imports uh, from other countries, like Vietnam. Now, the US industry will tell you, uh, we've filed some recent uh, anti-circumvention claims at the Commerce Department. We think a lot of that steel from Vietnam may in fact be Chinese steel that was diverted through Vietnam, further processed to avoid, to uh, circumvent the anti-dumping and countervailing duty relief. So we still have a problem going on and it's again at the heart going back to the problem with China. But I wanna emphasize here one thing where I think, there, I think part of the story that, that hasn't been told yet we hear a lot about the anti-dumping cases and countervailing duty cases being filed in the U.S. as if that's a U.S. Uh, phenomenon alone. In fact, if you look at the data, this is data from the OECD again, um, that looks at on the top the uh, new cases filed each year. Uh, you have from non-OECD countries in the, uh, in the top part and then OECD countries below. You see that in the last two years, 
half or more of the anti-dumping countervailing duty cases on steel are coming from non-OECD countries. The U.S. is not alone in invoking its rights under WTO rules to, uh, to address anti-dumping and countervailing duty uh, relief when there is evidence of dumping and subsidized imports coming in, causing injury to the domestic industry. So the idea that we're acting and we're creating this high-priced island and there's nothing happening, there are no anti-dumping measures in any other parts of the world, I don't think that's the full picture. This is a global problem, and you're seeing the same type of responses in many other parts of the world. Certainly in the EU, there are a number of trade measures being taken, but there are also in Canada, in Mexico, in many parts of, of the world, because this is at heart, I think, a global pro problem and needs a global solution. And that's why when, when we look at this problem of Chinese overcapacity and what can be done, we, we believe there's a several part, uh, parts to, to, to addressing this. One is continuing to aggressively enforce our trade remedy laws. They are WTO-authorized, WTO-compliant measures, narrowly tailored. I mean, that's, I think, a, a critical issue that I would distinguish anti-dumping countervailing duty relief from some of the discussion in, uh, in political circles about imposing overall raising tariffs 35%. We are talking about very narrowly tailored duties on select products that have been found through a, a very extensive legal process to be benefiting from dumping and or subsidies and causing injury to the domestic industry. Still, the vast majority of steel imports coming into the United States pay, play, have zero tariffs on them because we agreed to bind our tariffs in the WTO at zero back in the Uruguay round in the mid-1990s. We're for open markets, but we need to have those rules to address the narrow circumstances where we have unfair trade practices. So we need to continue to enforce those like we do around the world. But I'll be the first to admit, those cases alone are not going to solve the underlying problem. The underlying problem in China, and unfortunately growing in other countries, is this government intervention problem. And it's these subsidies, government barriers to exit. The United States is almost alone in the world in having a history of steel companies go bankrupt and their assets being sold off and other, other people buying them or, or shutting them down altogether. Unfortunately, you do not see that happening in China. You do not see that happening in, in other parts of Asia. Frankly, in the past, you didn't see that happening in Europe for many years when there was a lot of government ownership. The good news is Europe got out of the government ownership business in steel back in the, in the 1990s, and there's been a change there. We need to see that same type of change occur in China and elsewhere to get governments out of this policy uh, practice of promoting their steel industry through various forms of distortion, and then also to reduce some of the excess capacity that was put in place largely simply by government direction, government policy. So that's a major part, and as I mentioned, this is a big part of this is a China problem, but it's not exclusively a China problem. One of the interesting things, if you ever had a chance to go to an OECD steel committee meeting uh, held in Paris, invite all the OECD member countries, but also other non-OECD countries that are major producers of steel. And you get governments come and they make presentations as to their steel policies. And some governments are quite open and quite proud that they have policies to uh, build up their own steel industry to uh, have a target to increase their exports. This is one from Vietnam that was presented several years ago at the OECD. 
So, you know, their goal is to um, export 15% of their production in 2015 and raise that to 25% of total production by 2025, and at the same time to reduce their imports because they want to control it on both sides. So this is completely government-managed, and unfortunately, I think it's because Vietnam looks out and they say, hey, that the way China did things worked. Maybe we should follow that model, the model of government direction rather than a market-oriented model. So we need to address this problem and keep it from spreading or we're going to have more China problems. The same situation is true in India, uh, where there is a government ministry of steel, uh, and they have an official plan that they've announced where they want to increase from the, you know, their current steel production that's a little bit below 120 million metric tons. They want to increase that um, to 300 million metric tons by 2025. Now, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm not as convinced that the Indian government will actually be able to succeed in their plans, but this is their official estated policy plan. So I think this is an issue that we can all agree this is the wrong approach to economic development and that we need to get governments out of this business. The good news uh, that I would say right now is that we have been working very closely with the Obama administration and, and uh, our colleagues in other steel industries around the world that have the same concerns in Japan, in Europe, in Latin America. We've all raised it with our governments. And actually, there's a tremendous degree of, of agreement uh, uh, at the highest level of governments. The G7 that was held in, uh, in Japan back in May, part of the G7 declaration, I think the first time I can remember ever, that there was a paragraph specifically on steel overcapacity where they, the governments of the G7 countries agreed that they needed to urgently move to a system to eliminate market distorting measures and enhance market function. So get governments out of the business of steel making, let the markets operate. And then more recently, over Labor Day weekend, the G20 issued a communique where it likewise noted that the role of subsidies and government other forms of government intervention were the underlying cause of these market distortions that were leading to global problems and that these need to be addressed so that markets can operate rather than governments in directing. And you know, the, this is really important because as the OECD Steel Committee itself noted uh, back in 2015, this is part of a statement from the, the chairman at, uh, at one of those meetings. The concern is that if we don't address these market distortions, we could end up with a situation where the only companies that are left sur surviving will be those subsidized and state-supported enterprises, because they will, they will succeed at the expense of efficient market-based e uh, e economies, uh, e producers around the world who simply cannot compete with governments. And so that's really important for the steel industry. But I know one of the things you also want to talk about, what does that mean for steel consuming industries? And yes, you can look at the numbers on how many people are employed in one sector versus another. But I don't think that's the whole picture. I think you need to recognize, and I'm going to leave with just one slide, about the importance of innovation in our economy. One of the things and the role that the steel industry plays working in the US closely with our customers in downstream sectors. This is looking at a, a chart that we develop at AISI, and it's very technical, but these are all pictures of different grades of steel. And uh, what we're moving from is these conventional grades, the traditional 
grades of steel that everyone's familiar with to what we call advanced high-strength steels. These are steels that are being developed in close coordination with our customers in the automotive industry because automotive producers in the United States need to figure out a way to make their cars ever lighter so they have increased fuel economy, but they need to preserve the safety of those cars. They need to be able to continue to manufacture steel. The problem with old-fashioned steel was you made it really strong, it became brittle. You couldn't mold that fender around, so we need steel that's very strong yet very flexible. So how do you, how do you develop that? The auto companies are not experts in steel, so they turned to their suppliers in the U.S. industry and we have a very extensive program working with them to develop these new grades of steel to meet their needs because that's critical for the survival and success of the automotive industry. Similar stories can be told in other sectors, downstream sectors. If the U.S. industry is wiped out by Chinese dumping, Chinese subsidies, will the U.S. auto industry have the same type of relationship with the Chinese producers? I don't think so. That's not the way governments operate. Governments are not focused on innovation. They're focused on producing, meeting various uh, you know, production targets. Uh, if we're gone, it's going to hurt all of those downstream industries that depend on both those current steels, but the innovation to make the future steels that we need to, for the manufacturing the United States as a whole to, to succeed. So we think it's, it is critical for our customers, uh, for the U.S. industry to survive and to be able to prosper. And that's why addressing unfair trade is critical. But it's also, I think there's no, no doubt, the underlying problem is China and Chinese government policy. And that's what we ought to focus on. How do we move forward on that agenda? So I think I've probably gone over my 20 minutes, but uh, hopefully not too much. I'll stop here and let Dan talk and then be happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Kevin, for that excellent uh, presentation. I, I, I've heard him speak in public often. He's very good at it. He's, he's thoughtful, articulate, well-prepared. Uh, so I was very pleased when he agreed to do this program. Um, you know, I've kind of watched his career unfold. The, the office of Senator Danforth is really quite well-known for producing people who go on to distinguished careers in trade policy. Uh, his immediate predecessor, Ambassador Sue Schwab will be here on November 14 for another program. This will be looking ahead toward how do we get back on the track to trade liberalization. Mickey Cantor will be here with her, so you can uh, note that uh, the announcement's not out yet, but we have the, the date and the people confirmed. Now, when I was at the International Trade Commission, th th there may have been people in the U.S. steel industry who thought I was on the other side or that I, I, I wasn't really supportive of, of their industry. Not correct. Okay. I've had the opportunity to visit quite a number of U.S. steel mills and to see the engineering, the technology, the research that's gone into building those facilities and to making that product. Those people are really good. And they, are, they have gotten a lot more efficient. I had a ringside seat when I was at the commission to watch the restructuring of the industry that started in the early 2000s. And 
the, the, the efficiencies increased a lot. The industry made a pretty good living until the Great Recession of 2009, and it's been complicated since then with the uh, uh, huge increase in uh, subsidized steel on the global market that we're talking about today. But, th but th what I want you to know is that the U.S. steel industry is totally a world-class industry. It, it really produces a wide variety of very good and sophisticated products that meet specific customer needs. And it, all, it also produces some, some commodity grades, but it has evolved over time to produce more and more of the, of the high, high grades of specialty steel that the customers require. My, my hope in, in this discussion today is that we can start to consider how to restore sanity to the global steel market so that the U.S. industry can make some, biz, make some money without uh, resorting to trade remedies. And let me just, final word of background. My, my career has largely been focused on trying to apply economics to public policy issues. This, uh, this, this has been a particularly interesting uh, prospect with respect to steel, and so you'll see how I've wrestled with it. Okay. There we go. Okay. Uh, I'm going to just discuss three topics. First, the nature of the steel market imbalance. Second, China's policymaking process. And then third, how should the United States respond to China's excesses? So how best to understand the global marketplace? You know, overcapacity normally is measured in terms of crude steel, um, which is a product that has come out of the furnace, and it, but it has not yet been milled into anything that anyone can do anything useful with. Okay? Uh, and as has been mentioned, crude steel production uh, is about 1,600 million metric tons. Half of that is produced in China. There's overcapacity of about 700 million tons, most of which is in China. And uh, so that means we have about a 40% overcapacity. That's a lot of unused capacity. You know, I have some familiar, familiarity with commodity markets. A lot of my career has been spelt, spent trying to work with them. And excess capacity of 40% is just beyond anything I've ever dealt with. It could only happen in a situation where a government is driving that outcome. Because any open and competitive market would have self-corrected long before it got that far out of line. So it, it, it's not hard to understand why steel prices globally are not very high, given the, the, the level of overcapacity. But if, if we set aside crude steel for, for now and think in terms of what a steel user needs, uh, we, we see that crude steel, looking at the market just in terms of crude steel, isn't the only way to do it. Um, people who drill oil wells, they don't need crude steel. They need high-quality oil country tubular goods. They need drill pipe, okay, very specific stuff. Automobile manufacturers, as Kevin has mentioned, they need high-tensile high uh, steel sheet to mold into body panels. Okay? So crude steel doesn't matter so much to them. They are looking at something that will meet their exacting requirements. And, and uh, these customers that have the exacting requirements generally have certification uh, protocols that they go through before they will uh, allow any new company to sell to them. Okay? It's, it's a rigorous process because 
they want to make sure that the, the plant will run right when they bring in the new product. Uh, and, and so for, for many, for many customers in the United States, Chinese steel just doesn't measure up to what they need. So what this means is that in a crude steel perspective, China is capable of having a very meaningful effect on global prices, but it's often just not able to meet the needs of sophisticated customers. Those sophisticated customers will continue to buy steel from sophisticated suppliers, regardless of how inexpensive the Chinese steel might be. Despite the ability of, of uh, US mills to compete effectively in the domestic marketplace, the, the situation facing, that's the next one? That's the, okay. Um, the situation facing the US industry really is unfair. There's just no question about it. U, uh, US steel production last exceeded 100 million tons 15 years ago. It's down 22%. Uh, the US industry isn't creating the overcapacity. Rather, it's trying to deal with uh, uh, heavy inter intervention by the Chinese government, and so clearly not a good situation. Now let me move. Okay. Now, when I was in the private sector in the 1990s, I was a fairly serious student of uh, Chinese policy making with respect to international trade and uh, food and agriculture. China was attempting to open itself to the global market, but the government wanted to maintain a high degree of control over the economy. Those tensions still exist. Unfortunately, China's so-called socialist market economy has been driven far more by socialist planning than it has by uh, the actual market. China simply isn't very good at making economic policies in ways that reflect good economics. Because the Chinese leadership, or, um, I said, the Chinese leadership has been reluctant to allow market forces to in discipline investment decisions. This is really important with respect to steel and other high capital investments. Instead, those decisions have been influenced by local government officials, often working closely with state-owned companies. So what we've seen in recent years is that a, a very large number of uneconomic mills have been built that never would have been contemplated by investors who had to be concerned about getting a return on the funds they sunk into it. Uh, so China started this expansionary machinery rolling down the road, and they forgot to build in an off switch. And it's very clear that there still is no policy mechanism in place in China that is going to stop the expansion or stop new investments in steel. The central government has set a goal of reducing steel output by 150 million tons or by 2020. But the, the guidance that trickles down to the local level is only very ineffectively. Uh, there's a well-known saying in Mandarin, the heaven is high and the emperor is far away, which basically means that uh, central authorities can't have all that much control over what happens locally. So the local officials have considerable leeway to do what they want, often just ignoring guidance from Beijing. Frankly, Beijing has established highly inappropriate incentives to guide the decisions of provincial and municipal officials. Those incentives strongly discourage the closure of industrial facilities. Officials get rewarded on the basis of how much economic activity is going on and how many people they can keep employed. So having unhappy people demonstrating in the streets is, is a, a surefire way to uh, curtail one's career advancement if you happen to be a, a municipal 
mayor. New industrial facilities don't even have to be profitable. Running them at a loss will still meet the objectives of employing people and increasing overall output. output. Under those circumstances, it's, it's not hard to see why local officials take a skeptical view toward closing facilities. Their attitude appears to be, why should I close my steel mill and run the risk of protests? Let some other city close their steel mill. If China ever begins rewarding local officials on the basis of more enlightened criteria, then it will be serious. It will be clear that they're serious about shuttering some capacity. One criterion that they could use would be to achieve a high level of business profitability rather than just a high level of output. They could decide to discipline officials who allow their local businesses to acquire large quantities of unpayable loans. Uh, and a third one that I happen to like a lot would be, uh, why don't they pay officials for reducing pollution? The, the municipal or the, the provincial governor with the cleanest air and water gets promoted. Seems to me like that would, uh, that would go a long way toward starting to change the thinking of people who currently see their, their job as keeping open inefficient steel mills. Now let me shift to my final topic, which is how the United States might best respond to the unfortunate circumstances that China has created. The, the traditional US response has been to impose trade remedy measures, and we've talked about those. And this protectionist approach has, has visceral appeal, and I've argued recently that it probably goes back to the self-sufficiency need that our hunter-gatherer ancestors uh, felt. You know, it, there, there was just a lot of uh, risk in if you were in a group of 30 or 50 people out in the savannah of Africa, there was a lot of risk of dealing with other people because you weren't sure whether they were friendly or not. And so the, the, there are hundreds of thousands of years of, of evolution have taught us to prefer self-sufficiency. And I confess that e even at times libertarian trade policy anal analysts have some protectionist reactions, but, but fortunately, uh, we quickly managed to set those aside and focus on better alternatives. So ever since economists have started to think about international trade in a way that transcends instinct, it's been clear that a country that imposes import restrictions is hurt by them more than helped. As a quick illustration, let's imagine a country that imports 10% of a good that it and it manufactures the other 90% local, locally. If it decides to restrict that import, the price is likely to go up in the domestic market for all 100% that consumers consume, and yet the domestic producers will only benefit on the, the portion that they produce. So the costs of protection will be greater than the benefits, and the import restrictions reduce economic welfare. And this, this reality is recognized by economists across the political spectrum, a Democratic, rep, Republican, and certainly Libertarian. In other words, because import restrictions reduce the economic welfare of the United States, they're the, they're the wrong response. Even more, there's no reason to believe that trade remedies are capable of curing the problems currently afflicting the steel industry. And I think Kevin actually said that in another, in, in another way. Um, the United States has, uh, according to USTR's count, somewhere around 160 uh, 
uh, anti-dumping countervailing duty measures in, in place on a variety of steel products in, across a variety of countries. Uh, I would be interested, following up on a point that Kevin made about the market still being largely open with relatively low tariffs, I'd be interested to know whether the U.S. steel market has been more protected than it is now any time since, since Smoot-Hawley was phased out. And the, re the reason for asking is, is just that so many major categories of imports now have some significant level of anti-dumping and countervailing duty protection. So it, it's looked to me as if in the past several years, the country has moved to higher levels of effective protection for steel than we've had in a long time. But I'm not in a position to quantify that. So if anyone has, has thoughts on it, I'd be happy to talk to you later. <laughs> Uh, the reality is that steel prices are relatively low worldwide. Uh, because of its import restrictions, the United States has become somewhat of a high-priced island in a world of uh, a world ocean of low low-priced steel. Um, however, U.S. prices have not been high enough to really return Kevin's members to great profitability. I don't know how the firms are doing just lately, but. Last year, in 2015, U.S. Steel Corporation reported a $1.5 billion loss. That is, that is a lot of money for a single company to, to, to lose. But it, it's just, to me, implausible when we've got already so many anti-dumping duty orders in place. It's implausible to argue that adding a few more would fix that problem. But steel prices are high enough in the United States relative to other countries that U.S steel-consuming manufacturers are disadvantaged. Um, the relative sizes of the steel-producing and consuming industries makes it apparent, apparent why the United States loses from this exchange. Okay. The Department of Commerce indicates that primary metal manufacturing, which includes steel and all other metal processing, uh, metal manufacturing, I should say, accounted for about $60 billion of value added to the economy in 2014. Those firms employ 400,000 people. In the U.S. steel industry itself, I've seen numbers ranging from kind of 100 to 150,000. Uh, Kevin might, might have a better number. But now the downstream firms that use steel as an input generated value added of $900 billion, more than 16 times greater, as Dan mentioned in his opening comments. Uh, and they also employ six and a half million people, which again is a factor of 16 times greater. So certainly the U.S. steel industry is important. I, I would never argue otherwise, but, but it's less economically significant than the manufacturing sector that consumes steel. Now, if we want an example or two of companies who have adjusted their operations, perhaps in part to, due to high cost of inputs in the United States, we could look at Carrier, which has been criticized by some politicians for moving 2,100 air conditioning jobs from Indiana to its existing plant in Monterey, Mexico. Well, you know, to make an air conditioner, you need steel. You also need a couple other products that are under anti-dumping orders, uh, aluminum extrusions and copper tubing for the heat, heat exchange function. And then we, we, could, 
we could uh, look at Ford's decision to move its small car production to Mexico, which no, no doubt has been driven by a lot of factors. But by doing that, they can ex escape the, the policy-imposed costs that they were dealing with in the United States. So re removing trade remedies would do a lot to improve the business climate broadly in the United States. So what should be done with respect to Chinese steel instead of using trade remedies? Let's start with the reasonable assumption that Chinese leaders think they are taking advantage of countries with open economies by putting excess steel onto the world market. We should turn the tables by making clear that uh, we are taking advantage of them. Fundamental economics allow us to do this. China's decision to export steel for less than it's worth has the effect of transferring wealth from China to the United States. As a practical matter, the best way to encourage China to downsize its industry would be to reframe the debate by communicating the following message to the Chinese government. Thank you for transferring so much wealth from China to the United States by selling low-priced steel. It's helping to keep our large manufacturing sector globally competitive. And by the way, keep doing it. And would you sign a 10-year contract that you'll sell us steel at a loss for, you know? By, by radically changing the terms of the discussion, this approach has a decent prospect for getting the Chinese to rethink what they're doing. The current US approach is to complain to them about how much their exports are hurting American steel producers. Some in China seem to have concluded that if the United States doesn't like what they're doing, they must be doing something right. That's likely to lead to years and years in which China continues its current policy approach. On the other hand, if the United States turns, its ar turns that argument on its head by thanking China for transferring wealth to us, Chinese leaders might realize that they're being kind of foolish and not serving their own best interests. Keep in mind that in Chinese culture, it's very important for people to save face, which basically means acting in a way that preserves one's prestige, honor, reputation. People around the world generally try to avoid unnecessary embarrassments or are familiar with the concept, uh, but it's particularly uh, prevalent in the Chinese culture. And I just would note that U.S. presidential candidates seem to be an exception when it comes to uh, avoiding unnecessary embarrassment. But that's a side issue. Um, so my, my view is that Chinese leaders would be more likely to change policies relating to steel if not doing so would cause them to lose face. We also must recognize that for the United States to reap economic benefits, it needs to remove its trade remedy measures. Otherwise, competitively priced imports won't be available to manufacturers, and they will be under continued pressure to relocate overseas. Trade remedies are supposed to address unfairness. My experiences both in and out of government have been that government is really not very good at guaranteeing fairness. Policies that give an advantage to one person always seem to disadvantage someone else. There's a strong argument that trade would be more fair without trade remedies than with them. The optimal policy response would be to reform US trade remedy statutes. A new requirement should be added. Anti-dumping countervailing duty measures only should be imposed if economic analysis 
indicates that doing so would increase the economic welfare of this country. This would be an elaboration of the public interest test that's applied by some nations when they consider whether to impose trade remedies. Fortunately, adding such a requirement to US law would not impose a substantial administrative burden. The economists at the US International Trade Commission already have the necessary data and expertise when they're going through the final phase, the injury in, in investigation. Um, and uh, so the statute should be changed to instruct IC, ITC commissioners to consider the broad economic welfare effects of proposed ADCVD measures and to vote in the affirmative only when those restrictions will redound to the net benefit of the United States economy. To conclude, people on both sides of this issue should be able to agree that the US government should avoid policy responses that do more to harm the economy than to help it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dan and Kevin. I, I want to give you guys an opportunity to respond to one another's um, remarks. And then I have a question, and then I'll open it up to, to the floor. Do you, uh, is there anything in particular that Dan said, Kevin, that you want to address? Sure. I'll, um, I think a lot of this was covered in my opening remarks. I do think that on, in terms of Chinese policy and changing the incentives uh, for Chinese makers, I think these are all very interesting ideas about maintaining profitability, you know, reducing bad loans, reducing pollution. Those, if we could figure out a way to encourage those. I do think that there are people in the Chinese government who agree that those are important policy measures. And I totally agree with you on the heaven is high and, and the emperor is far away is a big part of the Chinese problem. It's a problem that's not, frankly, unique to China. Um, it is the problem that the EU faced back in the uh, 80s with its own steel producers where many individual European steel, uh, European countries had a national champion steel producer, and they were all trying to keep them afloat and providing subsidies, and they, they would not agree to get rid of them. And it finally took, the EU was able, through the establishment, because they had a supranational authority, to establish a state aids code where they all agreed that they should all forbear from providing subsidies because that would distort markets and hurt them all, and they got the subsidies out of the business, and then they got the governments out of the, out of the steelmaking. So it, it did succeed in EU. I think it's going to be much harder to do in China, but working with the Chinese to help them do that, I think, is critical. Where I disagree again with Dan is on, on the side about whether the trade remedy laws are hurt more than they help. I think they are critical for industries that are affected by uh, trade remedy laws. Um, they are critical for maintaining an international uh, open market system. That's why, you know, anti-dumping, countervailing duties are a hallmark and have been from the very beginning of the GATT provided for. Remember, the original GATT does say that dumping is to be condemned. And maintaining those narrowly tailored remedies are critical to maintaining overall support for trade liberalization. It is something that the steel industry has strongly supported. Uh, as I said, we've we agreed to eliminate all our tariffs on steel. We have supported previous, many previous free trade agreements because we think they're important both for us but also for our customers in downstream industries because often the way we export our steel around the world is through Ford cars, Caterpillar earth moving equipment, uh, GE appliances. So it is critical uh, that those markets around the world be open for those products. 
I would say that I think, again, the idea that you know if you just got rid of the trade remedy laws in the U.S., you'd solve all the problems is unrealistic. I mean, I think you know companies move facilities for any number of reasons. Moving an auto plant from the United States to to Mexico, frankly, doesn't probably change where you're buying your steel from. We actually export a great deal of automotive quality uh, sheet to Mexico. Um, I like to always point out that um, uh, the steel industry may be one of the strongest uh, proponents for the NAFTA in the, uh, in the in the U.S. It has been a remarkable success for us. We have uh, greatly increased our exports to Canada and Mexico. We've increased two-way trade. We've strengthened uh, 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 the manufacturing supply chains throughout North America that have made us more competitive with uh, producers from around the world. So I think it is building, strengthening those supply chains, helping, uh, but, but that requires preserving uh, industries facing threats from unfair trade, not simply uh, doing away with uh, trade remedy actions that is critical to the success, not only for our industry, but for our customers down the road. So I'll stop there. Great. Do you want to say something? Or? Yeah, I, I would just uh, mention that, I, for reasons of time, I didn't discuss this in my remarks, but I think if the U.S. industry was to decide that it wanted to have the anti-dumping duty orders repealed and got the incoming administration to agree to do that, and perhaps in conjunction with uh, uh, European and Japanese similar interests, that sort of thing, we would need to have a, a serious discussion about some transitional measures. Uh, and, uh, you know, as a libertarian, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about new government programs, but if, if, if overnight the trade remedies for steel no longer were there, we might want to contemplate some transitional uh, steps that would uh, guide the U.S. industry toward a soft, softer landing, if that, if that makes sense. Okay. I just want to say that thank you for the presentations. And the, the, the title of our event is Dealing with China's Steel Overcapacity. So dealing could mean let's solve this, or dealing could mean shrug your shoulders, eh. We have to just deal with it. <laughs> you know? uh, so, to the extent that we have ideas like having public interest provisions and in, 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 I'm in favor of things like that, I don't know that it solves the overcapacity problem. It, it certainly uh, uh, takes into account the, the adverse costs uh, on, on downstream industries. Some of the incentives that you suggested, Dan, I think are, I think are good. I'm just curious. For AISI advises the government in these capacity discussions. Um, you recognize that reducing capacity, even in the U.S. industry, was a very, very difficult thing to, to accomplish. Um, encouraging companies to, to stop producing when prices, when demand is going down and prices have tanked is very difficult in a high fixed cost industry. It's better to contribute to your fixed costs as long as you're covering your variable costs. You've mentioned that the, uh, the provincial governments are heavily involved in the subsidization of their, you know, the local steel mills in the cities. To what extent are they uh, beholden to Beijing? Uh, so what, what solutions would you advise to the U.S. government uh, if you're coming up with a, a solution to the overcapacity problem that the Chinese could accept uh, and that uh, are, is, is practicable? Well, thanks, Dan. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think that uh, you know, tinkering with the anti-dumping countervailing duty laws, we can 
debate all day whether they're fair or not. Um, that nothing, none of that's going to address the underlying problem of the overcapacity in China. That is, uh, I will be the first to admit, is uh, a very difficult uh, issue. It's a tough nut to crack, but uh, I do think uh, it's one that we have to address. Uh, the good news, as I noted earlier, was that um, the U.S. isn't alone. This is not like we face in some other trade disputes, that this is some bilateral dispute between the U.S. and China. This is most of the world uh, is in agreement with the United States government um, in the G20 and the G7 and other countries uh, that we need to get governments out of the steel-making business, out of subsidization, out of other market distortions. Um, I think a critical thing is to persuade the Chinese that it is in their interest to do this. Their economy is being wrecked. Their steel producers are not making any money either. Um, they, uh, if they want to have, a, if they want to transition to uh, you know, a, a more developed market-based uh, economic system, we need to help them do that. We need to help them uh, realize that they have to, uh, they're gonna have to make some difficult choices, but that in the long run, their economy is going to be stronger if they have more of a consumer-based economy like the United States that is open uh, to imports. That a key aspect of that is getting governments out of the business of owning and controlling uh, major producers. It also means establishing those basic uh, fundamental features of, um, of, of a market system, like a functioning bankruptcy law, mm. uh, that, and, and the appropriate social safety nets to uh, assist workers who are displaced. There are gonna be a lot of workers displaced. That is painful and that's politically difficult for any government to do. So there need to be social safety nets to assist those workers and to help them uh, shift to, to new employment. So uh, there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from how the US system has worked. And it, I think it worked fairly well in Europe. I think probably one of the key things is helping the Chinese realize this is, we're not picking on them. This is not just a China problem. Unfortunately, it's a growing problem in other countries. So that it needs to be a global solution where we're saying, all countries need to agree. We need international uh, commitments that no one is going to um, subsidize steel mills. No provincial government in China, no state government in the United States. No, you know, and uh, I'll be honest, you know, there have been, you know, instances where we have had individual states um, competing with other states, trying to lower investment. We, we need to get everybody out of that business and get governments out of, uh, out of, out of uh, trying to control the steel market and then let market forces work and with the appropriate social safety nets, we have a chance. It's not gonna be easy, it's gonna take a long time. That's why we're gonna have to maintain our trade remedy laws to address the impact of the distortions until they're, and, you know, and, and while we work at under reducing the, the underlying distortions, but I think it's, it's, it, we have no choice but to, to work to succeed. Maybe lead by example and get, get rid of our, our own subsidies. Well, one of the reasons that I've, I've recommended what amounts to a type of shock therapy is that I'd really like to work out of this over imbalance quickly rather than having it extend for 10 or 15 years, which I think is very, very likely unless the United States, preferably in conjunction with other uh, market-oriented countries, comes at the Chinese with a different approach. Uh, it's my experience in commodity markets. If, if, a, if a government is storing a bunch of, of surplus wheat, the wheat price will, will not go up again until that stuff is gone. And, and right now we've got the Chinese government and some others storing all this excess capacity of steel. And, and we need 
an approach that gets them to change that relatively soon, or we will be dealing with the consequences for ages. So I, I, I'm on your side. See, I'm just, I'm just getting there with a different, in a, in a different way. Let's, let's go to the audience if there are questions out here that uh, uh, wait for the mic. I'm going to point to you, and the mic's going to come. Please identify yourself and get your question. Thanks. Hi, sure. I'm, uh, my name is Andrew Heimert, and I had a question, I guess it's, it's really to Kevin, but to, to address Dan's point, which I heard him say, and, and if, if I got this wrong, uh, he can correct me, but that the U.S. steel industry is, uh, has more advanced steel technology, and as a result, I hear that maybe that's, it's not really in direct competition with Chinese steel. Um, first of all, is that an accurate characterization of U.S. steel producers' capabilities? And if it is, then what is the role or what is the concern for the, the raw, unsophisticated Chinese steel, and why is that affecting U.S. producers in a way that would, would justify anti-dumping or other trade remedies uh, to, to, to solve the Chinese problem? Thanks. Yes. Uh we are working very hard at developing new grades of steel. Uh, steel producers do make the full range of products. Uh, the reality, though, as has been, I think, uh, you know, debated, litigated, and uh, discussed at the ITC over many, many trade cases, is that imports across the whole spectrum of grades of steel do impact uh, the U.S. producers. So this Chinese steel that comes in, corrosion-resistant steel, um, that maybe across a wide range of products does affect, uh, it has a direct impact on, on pricing for steel in the US, and it does cause uh, impacts. So we're not insulated from protection just because we're, you know, we're working to develop new grades of steel. We're, you know, we're always working to meet our customers' needs, but, uh, but we do compete across the full range, and so we're, we're, we're going to be affected by dumping uh, by China, by Korea, by any, any country. So that, no, that the, the the, the, I'd love to say the, the innovation and technological advances have shielded us from import competition, but that's simply not the case. Yes, and even my comment was that, it, that the U.S. industry is partially insulated from import competition because of this specialization, but I would not, I would not argue that, uh, uh, that there's any type of total insulation, no. This guy back here. <laughs> Please identify yourself. Simon Lester from here at Cato. I just want to focus on the issue of, uh, of subsidies. The, the standard response to, to foreign government subsidies, as we know, is uh, countervailing, duty, countervailing duty measures. But I, I wonder if there's another option, which is to go to the WTO and bring an actionable subsidies complaint. Um, and I just wondered, Kevin, in particular, you know, if you'd considered that, if you thought about it, you know, would that be more effective? And picking up on something you just said, one of the advantages, I think, is you could have a coordinated attack. I mean, you said it's not just a US problem all the governments who are affected could, could get together and put pressure on China through a WTO complaint? Well, I mean, I think the WTO subsidies case is always an option. Uh, I think we do need to recognize that um, I don't think the WTO rules, though, on subsidies are perfect. Yes, they prohibit export subsidies and import substitution subsidies. The rest, you know, you still have to prove your serious prejudice. Um, and there it gets, it gets much more complicated because unlike... Uh, a Commerce Department investigation where you have an investigating authority that has the ability to, to re request data uh, and information from foreign governments and they have some ways to provide incentives for those foreign governments to respond or they're going to have adverse uh, inferences held against them. 
they're able to use those investigative tools to gather the information that is uniquely in the hands of the foreign governments. In the WTO case, it would be the U.S. on its own trying to prove its case, no ability to uh, force the Chinese to provide any additional information on their, their subsidy programs. They have been quite remiss in uh, notifying all of their subsidy programs, uh, and the role of government is, is very extensive in China. So um, there could be uh, you know, some instances where WTO cases can be a tool, but I don't think they're going to replace the use of the countervailing duty law as the most effective and most expeditious uh, vehicle for addressing unfairly subsidi unfair subsidized products that are coming into the United States. Sir, man, uh, hand up. <clears throat> Hi, I'm David Shah from <clears throat> Cato. Uh, when we're talking about overcapacity capacity of steel in China, um, please remember that China is not a real uh, market economy. Uh, it all the SOEs of I understand the majority of the steel companies are SOEs. They serve the, the main goal of the grand strategy of China, which is, uh, uh, so nowadays it's called uh, the Belt and Belt and Road Initiative. So that's more expansion on the, the rest of the world, uh, including the South America and Africa, and also the, uh, probably some of the advanced countries like US, because China tried to uh, support or supply the high-speed train programs in U.S., so it might need more uh, steels. Uh, of course, uh, when we talk, uh, I, I talk with Dan, I, I mentioned that the China, that the crude steel is high, capacity is high, but uh, the highest uh, quality or specific, specific uh, used uh, steel is still I need uh, importing. So I think it's kind of a st structural <coughs> overcapacity. It's, uh, it's not in real, uh, I mean, uh, so my question is, uh, according to this, uh, what should be the US policy and the strategy to respond to China's grand strategy of the uh, Belt and Road Initiative? Thank you. Well, I think there's, uh, I think you make a very good point about the, the nature of the Chinese economy overall, the role of the state, that it is a non-market economy. And that extends beyond steel into many other, many other sectors. Uh, and so I, you know, a critical first step is that we need to recognize that China remains a state-controlled economy and not, not grant them market economy status under our anti-dumping law. We need to continue to be able to use the law as effectively as we can. Uh, and, but we need to work also with our, our, our counterparts around the world to make sure there's sort of a common approach taken to recognize that, that, that China is operating under a different system and that we need to uh, press China to reform its structure. I mean, that was the hope when they joined the WTO was that they were going to move from the state-owned system. They were going to allow their state-owned enterprises to operate under commercial considerations. The fact of the matter is they haven't. So I think we do need to look at the full range of tools available. There may be some areas where there are some uh, WTO measures that can be taken into account to address the fact that they haven't lived up to all aspects of their protocol of accession. I think we need to um, uh, press to, uh, to, uh, the Chinese government to get out of the business of their, their, 
the financing role for SOEs both domestically and as they seek to expand overseas, because that's exporting those distortions to many other regions. And I think that's part of this whole belt and road, road uh, strategy. Um, and, and that is where I think our downstream customers and other sectors need to be very concerned because the Chinese are not going to stop at steel. They're looking to advance uh, steel consuming industries and build up their own, uh, their own industries across the full range. And that's where we need to be working uh, very closely together with uh, other sectors to make sure that we're not simply allowing the Chinese to move that state ownership uh, down into other sectors and, and expand those distortions. So um, addressing how, how Chinese state-owned enterprises operate, not only in China, but around the world is critical. So uh, greater rules on, um, on disciplines on state-owned enterprises, I think is another critical area. I will say one of the great hopes with the TPP when it was first under negotiation was that it was gonna provide a model in terms of new rules and SOE disciplines that could be replicated and eventually applied to China. One of our disappointments with the way it came out is that unfortunately the TPP, uh, while they have new rules on state-owned enterprises, they have a number of, uh, a, a large number of exemptions, including they only apply generally to, to central government SOEs, not to the provincial levels. They have a lot of uh, country-specific exemptions. So unfortunately, in some ways, they may have the reverse effect of, of of codifying the ability of state-owned enterprises around the world to continue to be operate, and and that I think is a big mistake. We need to get state ownership out of uh, economic uh, activity, both in steel and, and in all, every other sector. Yes, I, I would make offer just two comments. One in in, in response to Kevin's point about the non-market economy status, which is uh, um, you know a, a current issue. It's not clear to me that that matters much. I, I think the United States could, uh, could grant China market economy status and it would have very little commercial effect. I mean, if you worry that the Department of Commerce would somehow be so constrained that, you know, sure, they like to find combined uh, anti-dumping countervailing duties in excess of 500%. That's the highest I know of, so most of them aren't that high. But so instead of that, if they end up at 50%, that's still pretty commercially restrictive. And so I, I think that there's too much Sturm und Drang uh, focused on that issue. I think we should uh, uh, err on the side of meeting our obligations to China under the, their accession protocol and just say, yeah, okay, we're going to use uh, our regular criteria now, and by the way, a trust commerce then to, uh, you know, can still get you. to still be commerce, so to, so to speak. Uh, you have to understand, commerce plays a different role in anti-dumping than, than the International Trade Commission does, because commerce decides the size of the dumping duty or the countervailing duty, and then the International Trade Commission just mm -hmm. determines whether the industry is injured. So I, uh, I don't want to speak for any of my current or fellow uh, commissioners, but uh, current, current or former commissioners, but uh, I always had a somewhat skeptical view of, of how commerce was doing this. Uh, you, you know more about it than I do. Keep going, Dan. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the other point I wanted to make, though, gets to Professor Shia's question about the, the One Belt, One Road initiative. My sense is it's probably not the most economic thing that's ever been done by a government. I mean, but in the 1960s, the United States put a lot of money into a relatively non-economic project to land people on the moon. It was very exciting. It was a lot of fun. It brought the country together. And there have been some spin-offs from that in terms of you know, the, the, what, what was learned from that. So I'm not saying there was no value. But 
at the time, it clearly was uneconomic. I mean, who would have who would have said this is a way to you know boost U.S. We got tang. economic welfare? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, if the Chinese think they're they're for some reason that they're better off laying rail from Xinjiang out to Pakistan, putting a port in there, et cetera, et cetera, not clear to me that that's ever going to be able to carry either freight or passengers and make any money. But I understand there's precedent for doing that in China, doing things that don't make money. <laughs> uh, it seems to me foolish, but it also seems to me not terribly harmful to the rest of the world. Whereas what they're doing on steel, continuing to build capacity, that is harmful to the rest of the world. And it, it, even if it's helpful to us if we accept the product in, we still have to make policy adjustments here because of it that we ought not to have to make. Okay? Sorry, that's... Are there other, uh, there's a question right here. And there was another hand that went up there. Let's get both questions, because we're toward the end here, and that before they answer. Please identify yourself. Kathy Cannon with Kelly Dry. Um, so just a couple comments. Um, there were some comments made about the effects of the flat rolled steel cases and that there really wasn't that much of a benefit. Um, that was something actually we've studied a lot. We, we were involved in those cases and the International Trade Commission itself actually has made very specific findings as to the benefits that happened in those cases uh, once the provisional duties went into effect. And the hot rolled steel case alone, for example, there was an eight and a half percent market share shift from the countries that were targeted by the case to the U.S. industry. So U.S. sales went up, prices went up, profits went up, and that was just in a very short period of time because those cases, of course, are, are very new. Um, but my, my main question goes to this downstream industry point. Um, the, the comments Dan made, and won't surprise him to hear me, me suggesting that I might disagree um, because I work with a lot of the downstream industries in the steel world. Um, the wire industries and the wire fabricating industries that I work with actually are not as hostile to the trade laws in my experience as has been suggested. Sure, they want to get cheap imports sometimes, but they also want to preserve their U.S. customer base or their U.S. supplier base. They're very anxious that their U.S. steel suppliers are able to be solid and sustainable, and they're very concerned about what's happened to them. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, but number two, they've become very active users of these laws themselves. The um, diagram that Kevin put up that was talking about the five-year plan, one of the pinnacles of the Chinese five-year plan is to promote value-added product exports from China. They're trying to build up the downstream industries. They're using tax and other incentives to increase those exports. And so more and more, I'm being called by the downstream companies that really are concerned with having access to these trade remedy laws to be able to sustain their own industries. So I guess I'm a little uh, concerned that if, if you were to take the laws away, it wouldn't just be an effect on the, the basic steel industry that Kevin was describing, the crude steel production, but on a lot of these downstream industries itself that are relying on these laws increasingly. So I'd just be con interested, Dan, in what, what your thoughts were about how the downstream industries are, are using these laws and whether you think they, they really don't need them either. Okay, hold, hold that thought and we'll get the, this, the other question. Thanks. Thanks for that question. Uh, this woman right in the middle there. Thank you. Uh, Tori Whiting from the Heritage Foundation. Uh, thank you guys both for your comments. I have a really quick two-fold question that probably we could talk about all day long. Um, but the first part of it is, Kevin, you talk about how we need to encourage China and other countries to eliminate their market distorting policies. but 
the United States, while it might not be in the same degree as China and, and other countries that have uh, large capacities, um, we're also implementing our own market-distorting policies that are self-inflicted. We're hurting ourselves. We're hurting our own industry. So I just would like to uh, kind of see where your thoughts are in monkey see, monkey do. Why should we do the same things that are hurting other countries? The second part is uh, on the comments about innovation and uh, whether or not the U.S. implementing market distortion or anti-dumping, countervailing duty tariffs um, actually stifles the need for innovation in the domestic industry. Why should they have to make better products if the government can just uh, protect them from competition abroad? Sounds like a question for Dan and then for Kevin. Yeah, okay. First to, to uh, Kathy Cannon's question about um, the downstream users, the downstream industries using these laws. I had the opportunity to, uh, to sit through three quarters of the two-day hearing on Chinese steel that uh, the Department of Commerce and USTR convened back in April. And I was really interested how direct a connection the U.S. welded pipe producers made between the imposition of duties on hot rolled and then within some months, they started to see lower-priced welded tube coming in from overseas. And so then they had also to request <coughs> anti-dumping duty protection, which, which they received. So there, there's a, a spiraling effect of these measures when you, you start with a primary product and then the, the derivative products are, are, are disadvantaged here. And so it, it does spill down. Uh, so I can understand why they don't want the laws to go away unless they go, if they were asked the question, if they went away completely, would we be all right? Maybe, maybe they'd be all right. I, I just don't know. It, it, can I just add to that? I mean, one of the reasons I think that downstream suppliers don't speak out, uh, downstream users don't speak out against the anti-dumping countervailing duty regimes because they don't want to cross their suppliers. Uh, they don't want to be in a position to be elbowed out when there's a tight supply situation, when that comes on the cycle, uh, all of a sudden, oh, you, you spoke out against these uh, anti-dumping restrictions that were to our benefit, so, you know, you're going uh, you're, you're gonna to receive steel at this price. Uh, it's gonna, it, it makes things more difficult for them. And clearly, when you have a, an upstream uh, uh, anti-dumping order on hot rolled steel or something, the, the, the user, pipe and tube producers, are all of a sudden hurt by... Uh, the benefits accruing to the Chinese exporters of those products. And there is evidence, uh, the, the historical record shows that cases are brought by downstream industries that are hurt by upstream steel cases. So there, in other words, there's, there's, uh, there's, an, there's an answer to the question that you posed that's in the record. Sorry. Okay. Um, going back to Tori's two questions on U.S. market distorting policies, no government is... Uh, completely perfect. I would never say that the U.S. has no market-distorting policies, but I think overall we are a very, very light user of those. We have no major subsidy programs. Uh, we have, uh, I tell you, the, the area where there is the... Still for agriculture to some degree. For agriculture. I was just speaking for steel. Okay. We're not, we're not, you know, yes, we had a 
There was a little program back in the early 2000s to try to provide some steel loan guarantees. That's gone away. So that, yeah, we had one for a little bit. It went away. Um, one of the areas where I think there's the most rapidly proliferating forms of distortion that's affecting steel markets are the use of export restrictions on raw materials. Russia, China, places in Latin America, everywhere are trying to hoard their steel scrap, their iron ore, to keep it from going to the world market. One, it depresses that price locally. It gives their, their steel producers, a, 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 in effect, a subsidy, and it, and it raises the price on world markets, distorts everybody else. The U.S. has no export restrictions on steel scrap, on iron ore, on coking coal. We are, in fact, a net exporter in all three. There are a lot of U.S. steel producers who say, why are we letting that stuff be exported? We want to be able to use it here. We don't want our competitors around the world to be able to, uh, to have access to that. But we have, we have a free and open market in that. So I think on balance, uh, uh, you know, the trade distortions in the U.S. in terms of government policy are quite minimal. And I, I'd stack us up against anywhere in terms of uh, 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 allowing market forces to work. In terms of tariffs stifling the need for innovation, I think it's, again, it goes back to the question, we, often when we speak of tariffs and we speak of anti-dumping, we act as if it's this massive, across the board, 45% tariff on all imports coming in. Remember, uh, corrosion-resistant steel was, uh, you know, yes, there were orders placed on, uh, on five, five countries. But we're, you know, we're importing uh, corrosion-resistant steel from many more countries than those. There are huge numbers. I know in cold rolled steel, I calculated recently that, you know, that there were something like 25 countries not subject to any of the, the orders that are active exporters of cold rolled steel to the U.S. Plus, you know, there are eight producers in the U.S. making it. We have a very competitive market in the United States for all steel products. We are, you know, a number of our steel producers in the U.S. are foreign-owned uh, companies that also have operations abroad. They, they import as well as produce domestically. And so we are by no means keeping out every last ton of uh, imported steel. And there is very active competition, especially uh, for the high-value products uh, for the auto industry, the energy sector, and others. And uh, that's one of the reasons why we do have great innovation. And I would be the first to say we don't want to stifle that innovation, but we do need to be, maintain the ability to use these narrowly tailored tools to address the distortions caused by unfair trade, especially things where you have huge government-sponsored programs like we have in China. So that, you know, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We want to keep, keep the ability to use that tool while still letting in fairly traded imports from all over the world that, that keep us on our toes every day and force us to always look to be low cost. For the U.S. industry is really, I think, the low cost producer of steel today. Uh, we have benefited from low energy prices, certainly in the U.S., but also because we have had a big shaking out. I mean, we are not the steel industry that we were 20 years ago. There's been a lot of change, a lot of, uh, a, a, a lot of pain suffered, and we are, we are very efficient and very competitive. And uh, I think you know, the, the imports uh, from fairly traded companies around the world are going to keep us uh, on our toes, and we're going to continue to have to compete every day for every sale. Okay. So with that, we are seven minutes and 36 seconds into the lunch hour. Thank you very much, Kevin and Dan, for your uh, excellent presentations. Thank you for participating. Uh, let's, let's thank them.